The Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning. This is the Spoken Word Program and my name is Di Cousins. Today I'm talking to Gaylene Carbus about her new book, Anecdotal Evidence. Congratulations, Gaylene. Thank you. Um, now you've been writing and publishing poetry for quite a few years and you've even won poetry prizes as well. I was surprised to learn that this was your first book. How did it happen that you haven't published a book before? What do you mean? It only took me 20 years. <laughs> um, there are a few answers to that question. One is that I'm slow. I take ages to do things. Another is that I've been writing plays all that time and immersed in theatre. So over the last 20 years, I've written over 20 plays and produced some of my work as well. So I was writing plays, poetry and prose with the focus on plays. But I also think there's a psychological dimension to it in that it's not unusual for women to publish their first book after writing for many years. For instance, I was in a writing group with a group of women who were all 10 years older than me and they all published their first book by the time they turned 50. So at 40, I was the baby of the group. Well, you've somehow brought it together. Um, how did you make the connection with Five Islands Press? I was rejected the first time I sent Five Islands a manuscript and it was the first time I'd sent a poetry manuscript out into the world and then Five Islands told me that I'd been shortlisted and that they'd had a meeting and it was between me and another poet and they went with the other poet and then I met with Eddie Patterson who's on the publishing team and he gave me some very valuable feedback. He said... It would be good to think about how the poems speak to each other, the structure of the manuscript and the submission as a cohesive whole. So Five Islands ask you to submit your 50 pages of your best poems and I can be very literal so <laughs> I submitted what I thought were my best poems in those 50 pages and I gave a, some thought to the structure but I didn't understand that even those 50 pages needed to have some sense of a cohesive structure. So I went away and worked on that. Um, now, your new book is divided into three parts, grave in images, anecdotal evidence and the weight of words in our hands like water. Uh, what was the thinking behind this division? I wish I could take full credit for that, but in fact that goes to one of my Canadian poet mentors, Karen Soleil. I had a, a scholarship to the Banff Centre in Canada and we had three poet mentors, who all of whom were acclaimed Canadian poets who've each published many books. So Karen Soleil read my manuscript and I told her I wasn't sure about the structure of it. And she said, would you like me to have a play with it? And she came up with three different possibilities and one of them was essentially the structure that the book has now. Yeah, I think it's um, a very clever idea to make that sort of segmentation. 
Um, now, your work is um, strongly autobiographical. Uh, would you like to comment on that? I really like something that Helen Garner wrote, which was the I in the story is never completely me. And she also said it is impossible to write intimately about your own life without revealing something of the people who are close to you. So those are two things that I and many other writers are always grappling with or often gra grappling with and we all find our own ways of navigating that. And I also like something that writer Ralph Keyes said on this which was that when our life is depicted by someone else we have cause to feel misrepresented and it's not necessarily because the writer's facts are wrong but because they're incomplete and that applies to the writer too. She can misrepresent herself by leaving things out. So um, I both embrace and resist the label of autobiographical. On the one hand, I'd say my work is strongly autobiographical, yet on other levels, I would say more it's taken from my own life experiences. Because autobiographical, I think, can often be reductive or definitive or saying that it's about truth in inverted commas. Now, you recently taught Aboriginal women and coloniality in Australian Indigenous Studies at Melbourne University. Uh, do you identify as Indigenous? No, my background is Chinese, Irish and Cornish. My grandmother called herself chi half Chinese, half Irish. And on my father's side, it's also Irish and Cornish. There's a Carbus Bay in Cornwall. And the Carbus heritage has lots of mixtures in there, Spanish and Lebanese and God knows what, going very far back. And because I have dark hair and dark eyes and olive skin, I've always been called a throwback by my family. But throwback to what? I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> um, in terms of being not being Indigenous and teaching in Australian Indigenous studies, that's a really complex issue. I co-coordinated that subject and my co-coordinator and I both saw it as absolutely vital that we have Aboriginal women coming in to speak in the course. So we organised for guest speakers, guest lecturers each week for 12 weeks and it was the most amazing experience and such a privilege to listen to these women each week. Wonderful. Um, now, why don't we have a poem? What about House of Bricks? House of Bricks. One. My mother's eyes have grown old. Every so often she complains, no room in this kitchen. Only the old kitchen table covered in a plastic tablecloth that's easy to wipe clean. Our bodies collide like ancient ships in battle as we keep trying to sail past each other and claim our own corners. Above her, a section of the ceiling hangs in mid-air, caving in like cracking an egg at the edge of a bowl. At that first crack, it could crumble and fall, all the bricks crashing down on top of her. I ask my father, a builder, a solid plasterer, who's also in insurance, if he's sure she's safe. She'll be right, he says. Don't look so worried. It might never happen. Two. 
My brother threw a brick a while back at my father's car as my father drove away. It missed. My father fled. When I call him two days later to see how he is, I know straight away my brother's with him. My brother is always hanging around my father, his own private albatross. Three. Everyone and everything is forgiven. My mother forgives my father for the house we never had. My brother forgives me for feminism in the house we did have. I forgive my father for the house that's falling down. No one expects anyone to fix it. No one forgives anyone. Four. I was always asking my father for answers. Why did we live like this and what really happened? And how does one go about buying a house? And can you help me? And why can't you love me? My father says, leave it with me. And we do. All of us still waiting while my mother's eyes grow old. Yeah, beautiful. Um, you've conveyed a very clear feeling of the patterns of relationships and how things repeat and are unresolved. Oh, thank you. I, I didn't deliberately set out to do that. I was writing poems over a very long period and those patterns simply, I suppose, emerged out of the poems when they were placed together to form the collection. And, of course, I do see connections between those themes and ideas that I raise in the poems about childhood that are threaded through to the later poems about adulthood, for instance. When I considered the manuscript as a whole, I naturally considered the use of words and repetition of words and phrases more deliberately. Um, I've noticed a few different kinds of structures in your work. Um, the House of Bricks has a four-part chapter structure and you've also used a stream of consciousness continuing continuous sentence style in a, f in a few other poems. Um, tell me about the writers who have influenced your style. I was very influenced by the poets I first heard when I was introduced to the poetry scene in Melbourne by Lyndon Walker. And I was very fortunate to hear Pio and Anya Volvitz read when I was starting out as a poet. And they are, in my view, two of the greatest poets, performance, performance poets in this country. And I was absolutely blown away by their work and by how they read it. So they influenced me enormously in terms of what's possible with poetry especially stream of consciousness and accessibility of meaning, etc. And Anya, I think, is one of the greatest proponents of the form in this or any country. And Pio, he, he read this poem about Greek-Australian men sitting outside or either outside or inside coffee houses in Fitzroy. I don't remember the details, but what I remember is how he evoked the language and those characters and the setting, etc. I'm also influenced by a lot of American poets. I love those anthologies of best American poetry that come out every year. Great. Um, now, one of your stream of consciousness sort of continuous line poems is entitled Gallivanting. Um, would you like to read that? Sure. Gallivanting. 
There was a time when I gallivanted around with my father. My father was always driving, always dropping in to the office, then going again, then dropping in on a friend or a sister while he was over that way, the other side of the Yarra. My father was filled with feelings. He didn't feel like doing insurance. He felt like seeing a film. He felt like a pie. He felt like a cake. He felt like dropping in to see his family and friends, and he had me with him, so that was a bonus. And there I was, like a trophy or something saying something, though I never knew what. I thought maybe it had something to do with my parents separating, or something to do with showing me off, me by his side, saying, I'm a daddy's girl, and I was, but still, I was just there and didn't say much, and always felt there was something strange about following your father around in the middle of a day when everyone else was at work, but where he did no work and neither did I, I was on the dole. But all anyone would say when they saw me, the family and friends and insurance men at the office, was something about me being a lady of leisure. No one said anything about dropping out of school or drifting. No one asked what I was doing or what I was going to do with my life. And every time they called me a lady of leisure, and even when they didn't, when they said nothing, I was shy and ashamed, smiling in my floral dresses and stilettos, as if I was going somewhere. But there was a time when that went on for a very long time, and for a long time I wasn't. It's, it's a very evocative piece um, and, you know, gives one a, a, a clear sense of your childhood. Um, with those kinds of pieces, do you think you have to have, have left those situations in order to write about them? You wouldn't have been able to write about it when you were in that in that world. Actually, I didn't see it that way, but um, now that you say that, yes, I think that distance does give you that perspective. However, I am reminded of Alfreda Jelinek, who wrote... I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but she wrote The Piano Teacher. She's one of my favourite writers. And um, my understanding is that she wrote that about the enmeshment with her mother while she was still living with her mother. So I think that you can still be in something and see it clearly. Um, and aspects of those relationships and their complexities can still continue. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, um, I mean, I think you write different poems in different times and places. So perhaps the poem that you write if you were in that situation would have been a different poem to the poem that you write some years after leaving it, perhaps. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So let's go to another poem. Now, I like the bad breast. Now, I'm guessing that was about a past lover. Um, is that right? Yes. Okay. Would you like to read it? Sure. The bad breast. One. Poison. After seven years of Sunday dinners, he suddenly announces my mother's cooking has made him sick till he comes to the conclusion... She's poisoning me. Two, killing me softly. 
It's amazing how he'll snack on Tim Tams at work, try to seduce me with treats from the little shop, order chocolate milkshakes and iced coffees on top of desserts in every restaurant, never refuse ideas that come from television or talk, susceptible to every mention of something sweet, as if he can never get enough of anything that might fill him up and make him nice. Yet, the way my mother never makes custard or cream or serves up anything on those Sunday nights without sugar makes him reach a verdict. She doesn't know I'm diabetic. What does she want, to put me in a coma? I'll end up dead one of these days, then she'll be sorry. Till the final verdict, she's trying to kill me. Three, painkillers. On our morning walk, he says, he suspects my mother of spraying that stuff she uses for ants into his roast. Halfway through, he felt like throwing up. Yes, a violence churns in his stomach, the bile of a sickness that will kill him in the end. Four, the box. Today, we backed out of the narrow driveway of my mother's house where he stored boxes of yellowing books and mouldy clothes and where I feared he'd go crazy if he couldn't find the box he was looking for. He says my mother moves things around, creating chaos, a maze her children have never found their way out of. But the box is exactly where he'd left it. It sits heavily in the boot and makes the bumper bar hit a dip in the concrete with a heavy thud jolting us out of a journey that's gone smooth. He pulls out, savage, emphatic, splutters each word out like spit. That house is full of traps and destruction and death. Five, my mother's advice. He says he's never going there again, so long as he lives. My mother says he'll come round, get over it, be back. Take no notice, she says. She turns out to be right. He goes back, relishing every morsel of goodness in my mother's feeding, as if he's famished. She doesn't even have to forgive him. You know what he's like, she says. But she's like that. She doesn't take men seriously, dismisses the things that come out of their mouths as if they don't mean them. She can't believe I take so much notice of everything he says when I know what he's like. Yes, and you've conveyed that very well. We, I think we all feel like we know that chap now. <laughs> <laughs> well, one aspect one of One side, yes. <laughs> um, it's amazing how food can be a metaphor for the relationship between people, isn't it? Yeah, food can be so revealing of our relationships with ourselves and with others, I think. I think it's because food is so primal and so richly symbolic and imbued with cultural and social and personal and psychological meaning. Also in terms of food as metaphor for relationship, I'm very interested in psychoanalytic writing such as, and, and this particular poem references Melanie Klein's The Good Breast. And there's a an earlier poem in the collection that is actually called The Good Breast. 
And um, um, you very clearly constructed the relationship with only a few images and incidents. Thank you. I'm glad you said that way. That's what I was trying to achieve, I guess. Yes. <laughs> I think that's the power of poetry, to be able to convey truths and profound insights with only a few images and incidents, or even one image, one incident. Yeah. And you've also got some shorter poems that I liked. Uh, would you like to read The Child I Never Had? Okay. The Child I Never Had. The child I never had walks into the room and sits softly reading a book like her mother. She won't look up until lunchtime. In that world I can cook and I'm wise and wonderful. We read stories, make them up, plan tomorrow, sing and dance around in the lounge room, talk a long time before bed. I am a good mother, which means letting go. We grow older and we both grow up. And then we let go, turn back to our books and all the lives we live in them. We turn the page into our parents. But our words, like children, won't wait for us. What does it mean, our words, like children, won't wait for us? Well, actually, I kept changing those lines right up until the final proofs. Hmm. So I didn't know whether to end the line. I will get to the your question. But I didn't know whether to end with the line, our words like children wait for us or our words like children will wait for us. It gives it a very different feeling, doesn't it? So I'm not sure what any of those e mean endings mean. <laughs> But I think it means, I think it might mean that possibility doesn't wait around for us forever and till we're ready to take it up. So the idea of that we have to seize it now, not tomorrow. And I think the meaning is very connected to the idea of children and giving birth. Right. Yeah. Well, that's... that's, that's what did you think it meant? Well... <laughs> um, I, I was a little bit puzzled. I was a oh. little bit puzzled, yeah. Anyway. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there was something interesting and evocative about it and it sort of it, – and I think it's okay for a poem to leave one with a question. Yeah, You yeah. know, it's, that's okay. Yeah. You, you don't have I'm to have everything I'm still not sure defined. which ending I like, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah, no, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, now um, – I actually think there's a tremendous freedom in not having children, but sometimes people feel a sense of loss. Well, that's very true, and that poem is about that loss, though I don't personally feel a sense of loss in not having had children. But you do, of course, wonder about it, about what your life might have been like and about why you made that choice to not take that path and was it really a choice. And I think what I'm ultimately more interested in is the whole idea of choice and how much choice we really have and how much we're driven by unconscious forces. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess we don't necessarily know when we're being driven by unconscious forces because they're unconscious. Exactly. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but um, I mean, I uh, not having children, I experienced it as a liberation myself. Right. You know, which is not the general media perspective on not having children. Exactly. And I have so many female friends mm. who've never had children and they don't feel any sense of loss whatsoever. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, now, um, now you've got quite a few long poems and also some very short ones. Perhaps we could have a look at one of the short ones. I really like the simplicity of on inadvertently sending you poems. I can just imagine the finger on an on a send button, a little bit of accident. <laughs> <laughs> the Freudian slip. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. On inadvertently sending you poems. This is just to say, I have taken the truth and twisted it. Forgive me, it was so malleable and so enticing. And it points to the truth that the truth of poetry is often an emotional truth rather than a documentary truth. What do you think? Yes, that's exactly what I was saying earlier about work that's described as autobiographical. And I think emotional truth is much more important than documentary truth. It's the emotional truth that takes us to the real and powerful insights in poems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also like the humour of uh, the wrong woman. Um, let's have a look at that one. That was fun. Okay. The wrong woman. Then there's the summer I come back to find him doing sit-ups, the beard shaved off, the hair coloured, blonde. Next, it's the visit to the car yard, a red Lamborghini. Her car was red, so a friend said. She saw it in our driveway. And at the Tulip Festival, him driving her car, of course, though she was fed up with men saying, let's take your car, because hers was better. He's due for a new model, he says. The old one's just about had it. These shiny seats curve in, our shoulders scrunch, my chest is tight, I can barely breathe, I'm twisted up, contorted, a mutant plant sprouting in unlikely soil. The seats aren't comfortable, I say, of his fancy red car. He looks at me then like I'm crazy, clenches his hand at the wheel, stares straight ahead and says, perhaps you're the wrong woman for this car. I see him heading straight for a cliff and going right over it, him and his red sports car with the right woman. <laughs> mm. I'm not vengeful <laughs> That's alright And we're going to run out of time very soon But you do have quite a few relationship poems in this collection And there's clearly a big love and a breakup um, I thought the breakup was very neatly expressed in the poem The Taste of Fridays The Taste of Fridays We've separated Friday at five, a message on the machine. You've bought fish and asparagus to fry in lemon juice and butter. Maybe you should stop by on your way home. You could cook for me, but it looks like you've missed me. All those turns we took every night, 
You standing there gently rocking the pan just above the flame, furious spurts of fat almost lashing your face. Our own private Australian barbecue, you doing the meat, me chopping up vegetables and cutting up fruit just the way you like it. The way you do for children or someone you care about, someone you love. By the time you reach where you live now, I'll probably be in front of the TV with takeaway. Yes, another beautiful use of food as metaphor. Thank you. Um, so um, we probably have to end there. I've been talking to Gaylene Carbus about her new book, Anecdotal Evidence. Um, thank you for coming in, Gaylene. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, that was lovely. And it's been fun. It's a great book. And uh, where thank can you. people buy it? Uh, local bookshops will get it in if they haven't already got it in. Yeah. Great. I got mine at Readings. Okay. Yeah. And Collected Works has probably got it too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. My name is Di Cousins and this has been the Spoken Word Programme.